0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to worship you in song and prayer and giving and fellowship and in your word. Help us. Help us that we would yield our heart and mind to you, to your spirit, to your word, that you would mold us, that you would enable us to gather the importance of these truths, that you would mature us in our mind. And as a result of that maturity in mind, we know that your spirit will put into application these truths in our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. What is your most prized possession? Now, don't be spiritual. I'm just talking about something that you like, like maybe you have a car or a ring. Something that you, what is your most prized possession? Why is it so precious to you? What makes it so precious? Since it's precious, do you try to protect it? What do you do to protect that precious possession, that treasure of yours? Jesus spoke of treasures that would rust and could be stolen. Then he spoke of treasures that would never be taken away, that would last for an eternity. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Paul also spoke concerning treasure. And he wrote this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He basically tells us that this treasure that He speaks of is housed by something less than lovely. Jars of clay. He's not talking about the ornamental kind. He's talking about this just in a a functional container. A functional container. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. Because this treasure is in, in an unflattering container. Sometimes we are not quite aware of just how valuable that treasure is. Paul begins the book of Galatians with great passion and very little fanfare. He doesn't dress up his introduction, but rather gets straight to the point of this letter, which is defending the value and use of the greatest treasure given to the church and to the world, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The introduction gives us two main ideas to ponder. The first is the authority of Paul and his message. The second is the blessing of God. We already read Galatians 1, 1-5 responsively. I want to do so again. I'll read it, and you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says, Paul... of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. First of all, we want to notice that God's calling enables us to persevere regardless of opposition. God's calling enables us to persevere regardless of the opposition. Now, you can understand just by the way this letter is written. If you've read through Galatians, and I trust you have, and I trust you'll be reading through it regularly through the course of our study. One of the things you'll notice about the book of Galatians is there are opponents to the Gospel. Opponents to the message that Paul preaches. And Paul really doesn't pull any punches. He's very strong in his accusations against those who would distort the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason he is so adamant the reason he is so strong, the reason he is so offended by this opposition is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure we could possess in this earth and into eternity. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves us eternally and saves us presently. We'll see that a little bit later. Paul follows the standard writing formula. The writing formula in the first century was was this. There was a a writer that was declared. There was a recipient that was declared. Some form of a well wish greeting. But he skipped one of the facets of a letter opening, and that is the thanksgiving. You'll notice, if you read through the epistles, you'll find Paul or Peter or one of the other apostles introducing themselves. And then he'll tell you to whom he's writing, He'll probably give a well-wish, and then he'll say, and I thank God every time I think about you, or every time I go to prayer, I thank God for you about no such thanksgiving here in the church of Galatia. That's not to say that there was nothing thankworthy of God's work in the Galatian believers. It tells us a little bit about the passion with which he was writing, a little bit about the forward strengthening that he had anticipated A little bit about the vehement defense for the gospel that he was about to embark upon. The greeting really sets the tone for the entire letter. It's a letter of urgency, it's a letter of defense. Listen carefully, and it is a letter of liberation. Liberation. He exerts his biblical authority right from the outset. His claim I am an apostle. His credentials, not from men, nor through a man or mankind. His confidence, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. He mentions His companions and all the brothers who are with me. Oftentimes, He'll list the brothers who are with Him. This time, no such naming What's the reason for that? He doesn't stand alone in his defense of the Gospel. That's why he says, and the brothers. However, he didn't need to name names to have credentials. This is important, friends. The message of the Apostle Paul is the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that message and that messenger were under attack in this region at that time. And ever since. To this very day. The true gospel is under attack from the world, via satanic influence, and in so called Christianity. The gospel is absolutely under attack. The purity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel is absolutely under attack in professing Christianity. So Paul asserts his authority not based upon some credential that he had earned through going to seminary, not through his experiences of being a viable witness and a viable representative. His credential is none other than the one of whom he preaches. That's Jesus Christ Himself. Being called by God, friends, gives one the confidence to persevere Regardless of the opposition, it doesn't matter who, and it doesn't matter how many rise up. The call of God gives us the ability to persevere against opposition because we know that what we stand for, what we treasure, is the greatest treasure and cannot be taken away from us even if they take our lives. It was interesting my wife saw some activity outside of our house this morning. Someone was taking pictures of our church sign. And they were kind of clothed differently. And they may have had a, a particular way that you could say, mm, I wonder if that could be one of those types of people that plans an attack against the church. It was just the, the, the setting for it. So my wife said, this, there's someone strange outside taking pictures of the sign. I'm ready to get and take a shower. I'm showering. I'm thinking, you know, all right, whatever. And I'm thinking, all right, well, let let's suppose this were the day, folks. I'm not saying that particular person. That's true about them. I, I I doubt it is. I don't think we weren't racial profiling or anything like that. It's just it's something that comes into your mind in this day and age after all the things that have gone on over these last months and years. What if today's the day? I'm just thinking. What happens if someone comes in with an AK-47 and, and, and has it pointing? Hey, you know what? My, my first response, so far as I know, God is my witness. Friend, don't pull the trigger yet. Listen first. Then you can pull the trigger. I'm not scared to die, friends. I really am not. Why? Because I know the Gospel. God has saved my soul. He saved me eternally. I have no fear of death. What we hold... In our hands, in the pages of the Scriptures, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure we could have, and we have an authority from God to proclaim this. Paul says, I am an apostle. The term apostle is one sent, a delegate, or a messenger. Now, some, some churches think that there's a continuation of the apostles, and they call apostle so-and-so, apostle so-and-so, and all of that. Um, well, let's just say this, from our understanding of Scripture, and it is a strong understanding of Scripture. The apostles stopped in the first century. Okay, there's no apostles now. They don't have the right to say, yes, I'm an apostle and I speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. And then they tell us something different than the Scriptures. There's no new revelation going on today. God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. We have it all. It's contained in the pages of Scripture. God is sending no new revelation our way to, to, to understand what His message is. He's given us the whole thing. It's very clear, from Genesis to Revelation, it is a complete and entire packet. It carries one storyline, and that is God rescuing us from our sin that we might worship Him and declare His glory forever, here on earth and throughout all of eternity. There's no new revelation. Paul says, I am an apostle. Now, we remember something about Paul's apostleship. It was a little different than the others. You'll remember uh, James and John and Peter and the rest of the, the disciples that followed Jesus. They were His disciples that He called them. And you'll remember that one of them was a, a dissenter turning Him in. Remember Judas Iscariot? And then they replaced Him with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. They gave two credentials for the, the new apostle. He had been with Jesus and seen His ministry in and out. And they had seen the resurrected Christ. You'll remember these things. But then take a look with me at 1 Corinthians, just two books to your left, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is a unique apostle. He humbly and rightly calls himself the least of all the apostles. The reason he's willing to say that is because he's a sinner like the rest of them and every one of us should view ourselves as the least. Oftentimes we are tempted to look at ourselves as the best. The reality is when we understand the truth and we really know ourselves, we really would recognize that we are the least. Paul recognized himself as the least of the apostles. Take a look beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he gives us a clear little Gospel in a nutshell, verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas... Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So, in other words, what he says at the very, that very last line of that section, he says, whether Cephas or James or I preached to you, It makes no difference what's the message. What's the message? It's the Gospel. He told them what the Gospel is. It's Jesus. Dying for our sins. Being buried and rising again the third day. Listen, in accordance with the Scriptures. It accords with the writings. It accords with the the breathed Fourth word of God. So the gospel. Paul is an apostle. Paul will point to his special relationship with Jesus Christ as he continues the letter to the Galatians. Take a look back in Galatians chapter 1. We'll look a little further in the context at verse 11. Paul's pointing to his special relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1, he writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Look a little further at verse 15. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He doesn't need credentials from men. He doesn't need to be taught by men. He has a direct word from God. And it's the word that is in accordance with Scripture, but it's, it's all encapsulated now, isn't it? It's, the canon of Scripture is closed. We have everything we need. And so that apostleship no longer exists. However, God still does send people. But because of this commission that Paul had from Jesus Christ... He would stand with unshakable confidence. But God still calls people to service. God still calls people to service. An example of that would be Timothy, who was a protege or a a disciple of Jesus Christ via the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy concerning his calling. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, When the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now the council of elders did not give that gift. The council of elders acknowledged that gift. They recognized that gift. They did not produce the call. How were the leaders of the church, listen carefully, how were the leaders of the church to assess someone's calling? Was it by word of mouth? Well, so I've been sent by Jesus. I am a messenger of Jesus. I am a prophet of Jesus. Is that how it's authenticated? No. No, God actually gave them criteria that they could follow to say this is a person called by God. You can find it recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can find it recorded in Titus chapter 1. And then you can find some more in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 22 and following. These Passages give us qualifications for those who would lead God's people. We call them elders. They're also called bishops, they're also called pastors, but all three words are used interchangeably. So there's no difference between a pastor and a bishop and an elder, it's it's just really emphasizing different elements of their function. An elder is one who has has the the age of time and and maturity of scriptures underneath their belt. The, The term bishop has the idea of one who oversees, and the idea of pastor has the idea of one who feeds. It's just giving a little bit of functionality to the office of elder or pastor. For the one serving, for the one serving, a call from God keeps him from packing his bags and running from the burden of ministry. Let me tell you, friend, if you haven't been in an eldership-type position, you really can't understand the burden that comes with shepherding 100, 150, 200, some people, 500, some people more people. The burden of that is immense, and the pressure that comes with that is intense, which is why so many crack under that pressure and crack under that intensity. The reason is they start looking to themselves rather than the source of their call. But the, the call from God is, is that which gives confidence to the, the servant to keep on running toward the ministry rather than running from the ministry. Also, for those under the care of the called one, those who are called by God, they can endure the called one's burden that calls them to action. When you know someone is called by God and they are bringing forth the scripture and they call you to action, to act upon the scriptures by the Spirit, because you know they're called, you can endure that burden that comes with that call to action. Now, does that mean that a called one never misspeaks or a called one will never lead you astray? Should you always listen and, and heed every word that comes from every pulpit? Can someone teach an errant theology? What is the church's responsibility? It is always incumbent upon every person to ensure that what they're listening to and subscribing to is in accord with Scripture. And we have a good example of that in the church of Berea. Listen carefully to Acts 17.11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So there's, they're testing They're testing the word that comes with what is recorded. Not with what they can read in some book somewhere else. That's not the test. The test is what saith the Lord. That's always the end of the discussion. Not some person from church history. Not some person from contemporary history. It's always what does the scripture say. So we align ourselves with that. Take a look also, actually on the screen this one is as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's another way we can assess whether what we're hearing is accurate. You can tell by the way that a person lives. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, listen to what Paul said to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, listen carefully, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. You saw not only what I taught with my mouth, but what I taught with my life. What I taught by my manner of life by my purposes in life. You can see the call on someone's life by their pursuits. Listen, it's easy to talk about loving God and loving Jesus. But loving God and loving Jesus comes with fruit. Not fruit that you produce. Fruit that God produces. It always comes with fruit. You can't love God and bear no fruit. Because the one that brings forth the fruit is God. And he never fails. So we cannot, friends, we can't settle for some form of Christendom. We must only settle for the right form of Christendom. Which means we follow the gospel and the gospel does work in our lives. It's always the way it is. Does this message reflect the character of of Jesus? Does the messenger reflect the character of Jesus Christ? So Paul had authority to proclaim the gospel because he was called by God. Secondly, in this opening to the book of Galatians, God's blessing, this is great, God's blessing produces deliverance now and forever. God's blessing produces deliverance now and forever. So again, I want to just commend you to this greeting. This greeting, it's five verses long, and Paul wasted absolutely no time. He says, God's called me. The message I have is from him, not from me, not from men. It's from him. You should listen. And he starts to give them a little glimpse into that message right in verse 3. He says, grace to you. Now, we smart people know that grace is the source of of our eternal deliverance. There is no deliverance outside of God's grace. We don't earn deliverance. We don't obtain deliverance by steadfast obedience to some law somewhere. Grace is the source of eternal deliverance. We know Ephesians. Take a look there. Take a a right. You're going to go through Philippians and go right to Ephesians chapter 2. Very well-known passage of Scripture that, that really it really lays out our plight. It lays out the dilemma that we have as human beings. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. In those trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world like everybody else following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is, this is our plight. This is who we are. That we're born like this. We grow like this. Like that's how every day we grow in our ability to be just like this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, This is the source of our eternal deliverance. And then he says, and peace. We can add, because it's in parallel construction, peace to you. Peace to you. Peace, friends, is the result. The result of our eternal deliverance. Take a look with me at Romans chapter 4. His pronouncement, his well wishes... He changes the standard greeting of the first century. In the standard greeting of the first century, he kind of, they, they would say, hey, joy, joy, and well-being. That's what they would say. Joy and well-being, happiness and wholeness of spirit. That's what they would say. Paul Christianizes it and says, grace to you, the source of God's eternal deliverance, and peace to you, the result of God's eternal deliverance. Look please in Romans chapter 4 beginning in verse 20. We're cutting right into the midst of a discussion concerning Abraham's faith that brought forth justification. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I want to stop there just for a second. Do you remember Abraham? Was he perfect? You could name a list of sins from Abraham. Even related to this very subject. Hagar had a great idea. Excuse me. His wife, Rebecca had a great idea. Listen, I'm just too old for this thing. It's just not happening. Here, have Hagar, my handmaid. We'll have a, we'll have a son by her. Does that reflect anything? of a wavering in Abraham, I'd say it does. I'd say it does show a little bit of weakness, even regarding faith. But in spite of all of that, despite all of that, he stands as the father of the faith. Because back in Genesis 12, when he was in another land, God told him to get up from his land and go to another place, and God would bless him, etc., etc. You know how Genesis 12 reads. And he did that. And then God said, I'm going I'm to give you an inheritance through a son. And he waited. And then he faltered. And then he waited again. And God brought forth that promise ultimately in the person of Isaac. We, we look back at things with rose-colored glasses sometimes. And we forget how frail and fickle people are. Including this one being brought forth to illustrate a point that came before that failure. It says, and... No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is why his faith was counted to him for righteousness. Now, you remember where that's recorded? Genesis 15. That's before the failures, just so you know. That's before. So we've got this, this record. God counts faith as righteousness. That, the doctrinal term for that is justification. Justification. Justification has two directions. The removal of our sin, the addition of righteousness. When Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, God attributed to him the righteousness that was attained not by Abraham but by God Himself and specifically in in forward-looking the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the only righteousness that's ever allowed anyone into the presence of God. Jesus' righteousness. Verse 23. But the words it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us. What will be counted to us? Righteousness. It will be counted to us. What righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. It will be counted to us. This is, this is the best news. This is the treasure that we hold in earthen vessels. Jesus' righteousness on my account. There's no better message. There's no better treasure because everything else leaves you on the outside looking in for eternity. Listen, listen, this is is the treasure we hold. Jesus' righteousness, not mine, not yours. Given by grace, the source of our eternal deliverance. And it has another result. Look a little further. But for ours also it was counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, listen carefully, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of justification. Because of grace, because of Jesus taking my sin, every one of them, away from me, remitting my sin, removing them forever, washing the record clean. Because Jesus took my sin away and gave me his righteousness, I have peace with God now and forever. Paul, here's Paul. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Christ and God our Father, who raised him from the dead with the brothers to you, churches in Galatia. Grace to you. You need grace because it's the source of eternal deliverance. And peace. You need this peace because it is the result of eternal deliverance. Listen, this, this is the best news, and it's all God's blessing. Can you earn God's grace? Can you earn God's peace? God's blessing. This is what we're talking about. His introduction is all about God's blessing producing deliverance for the future. But that's not the end of the discussion. Also for now. This grace and peace comes from God our Father who planned it all. And the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. Paul gets right to the Gospel. Listen carefully. The Gospel produces an eternal Deliverance. The one who trusts Jesus alone for His salvation has received an eternal pardon for his sins. I want to ask you a question. We're not finished. I don't think I'm wrapping up quite yet. We're getting there. I want to ask you a question. Have you experienced eternal pardon for your sin? I'm talking to you. Have you experienced a pardon for your sin that can never be revoked. The gospel, Jesus, removes forever the debt, guilt, and condemnation for our sin. And this is what Paul says to start the book of Galatians. He holds nothing back. He starts right at the beginning with this assault against the false teachers. He is very sharp. He is very strong. He is very opinionated, and he doesn't, he's not politically correct. Grace to you. If he wanted to expand upon that, what he would say is, these false teachers are distorting grace. Peace to you, if you wanted to commentate on that a little bit at this point, which he doesn't, he would say, these people will alienate you from the peace of God. They will take you from peace with God because you cannot earn God's favor in any way and you will have no peace with God if that's how you try to obtain it. He's very strong. He's telling you that this comes from God, this message comes from God and it's for their benefit. God's blessing produces deliverance Now and for eternity. Why do I say now? What what is that coming from? Take a look at verse 4. Galatians 1 and verse 4. He finished verse 3 by saying, And the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, listen carefully, to deliver us from the present evil age. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil evil age. With that statement, he is not talking about their eternal deliverance. He's talking about temporal deliverance. He's talking about deliverance from people that would distort the gospel of Christ. He's talking about deliverance from our own waywardness that, that constantly brings us back to our old self and our old way and our, our bringing up the, the old vomit that we used to involve ourselves in. That's the way our mind goes. The, the old man grows corrupt in his nature, day by day. That's what happens. And our bent is that way. But for the grace of God that delivers us from the present evil age. Isn't the gospel just about eternity? No. If that's what you think of the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. If you think that the gospel is only what gets you into heaven and that's what the source of that is and and so you can tell other people how they can get into heaven, if that's your view of the gospel, you don't understand it. It's not a full picture of what the gospel is. Paul's treatment of the gospel in the book of Galatians is related to how it is employed in the Christian life. God gave us the gospel to rescue us from all manner of other ways that we could live this life in this warped world. What we will notice as we continue our study of Galatians is how the gospel through the Holy Spirit delivers us from bondage to the law, even the law of God. Does the law have a place in the Christian's life? Yes. Yes, it does. When God's gospel is working in my life, which means the Spirit is working in my life, which means I've put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? When that's going on, the requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, and verse 4. However, the law cannot do that. The law cannot make you spiritual. The law cannot make you godly. The law cannot make you pleasing to God. The Spirit using the Gospel will release us from bondage to the law. It will release us from bondage to religious systems of men. It will release us from bondage to sin. The gospel re- will release us from bondage to Satan. And the gospel will release us. It will release us. Listen carefully. It will release us from bondage to ourselves. That stupid little cartoon, we have met the enemy and he is us. We're our worst nightmare. We are our own worst nightmare. The gospel can release us from bondage to feeding our flesh and doing whatever we feel like. The gospel releases us from this. It's a beautiful, wonderful, freeing, liberating experience to know the gospel and its impact, not just for eternity, but also for today. Why does Paul end this greeting with a doxology? He says, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Why does Paul end this greeting with a doxology? Ready? Because the gospel is a reflection of God's blessing and sovereignty. The gospel should always The gospel should always result in worship, not of ourselves, not of our church, not of some song. Oh, I like that song. I like the way that, that sounds. I like that thing. I like the way this thing goes. I love it when we do this. No, the gospel results in worship of God himself and God alone. The fact that the gospel is a reflection of God's blessing results in, that results in deliverance both now and forever means that I must treasure this gospel. It is a gospel worth treasuring a treasure worth keeping. This is what we've, we've been given. And he starts off by telling us of the, the vital nature of what this gospel is and why we should guard it. Friends, on the radio, on the television, and in churches, the gospel is under assault. They may say Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again the third day. They may say that. And then they tell you, now go and do this. Now go and do this. You can, you can please God by this activity, in this way. Pray this much. Read this much. You'll please God. And the gospel says, here's what satisfies me. Jesus. Jesus satisfies me. And Jesus alone. The gospel is worth treasuring. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to treasure what you've given to us the blessing of grace the blessing of peace with you the blessing of eternal life the blessing of righteousness forever and the blessing of liberation from our own wickedness father do your work in our lives as we sit here and as i stand here We recognize there could be some among us that don't understand this gospel, that don't know this gospel, that have not embraced this gospel, and they have not experienced the deliverance from sin. We ask, Father, right now in this hour that you would reveal the truth of the gospel to that one, two, three, four, or however many it is that have not embraced Jesus alone for the remission of their sin and the addition of your righteousness. Bring forth the salvation of men and women for your glory. May you do your work that we could never do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.